verses 6 through 7. Continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you are taught and overflowing with gratitude. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Chi. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, that's good. We can do that. Um, I'm supposed to hype up something right now. So I'm just going to briefly hype up the all-people's picnic by saying the Indian food will be amazing. <laughs> I guarantee it. Nobody, nobody showed up. I invited all of you to our research lunch last week, but that's okay. Um, the Indian food will be amazing. The Thai food will be amazing. And you may notice a connection there to two of our global missions, uh, church partnerships, our ministry partnerships. We've had an ongoing partnership in Bangkok uh, through David Ta, who's coming to join us as an intern. And you all met Anand Mahadevan uh, in January. And so we're, we're kind of connecting our, our food and our celebration to those two partnerships. Um, another quick announcement is our student ministry, middle and high school students will not be meeting after the service so that you are free. I know why, why they were so excited because they have special plans for their mothers and they've just been waiting to unveil those plans right after the service. It is Mother's Day, by the way, and just, uh, just want to say a quick word there. We want to honor and thank all of our mothers. We all have mothers. Uh, it is, it is uh, not a part of the official church calendar. Uh, but it is a part of our cultural calendar. Mothers are important to us. We know anytime we bring up a day like Mother's Day, it's also complicated. Sometimes it's a hard holiday because of our relationship uh, to our, our own mothers or because of our desire uh, to be mothers. So we just want to acknowledge it's, it's hard for some. It's a day to honor others, but it's a special day um, uh, for us to, to take time to say thank you uh, to our mothers. Well, turning our attention now to the passage we just heard, we are in a series on Colossians. We're calling it first because the theme of Colossians is really twofold, that Jesus is both sufficient and supreme. So he is enough for everything we need in this life, and he is Lord and master over all of our lives. Colossians introduces this, this new arithmetic to living. The arithmetic goes like this. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Throughout Colossians, Paul is explaining that and he's unpacking that. He zooms out to say, this is the truth. Jesus is, he is Lord over all, he is sufficient for all, and he takes that into our daily lives, even bringing it into our homes. And that's the series we're in. We're looking at uh, the heart of the letter this morning where Paul transitions from explaining the realities, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done, and now he's starting to get practical with all of this. If you were here last week, you might be wondering, if you remember, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but didn't you preach on this text last week? Maybe you had a busy week, Pastor Eric, and you're just going to do a redo. Is this going to be the same sermon? It is the same passage. It won't be the same sermon. Let me explain. There are at least two ways to 
uh, study, study the Bible, to study any book in the Bible. You can go through piece by piece and part by part and look at the passages, look at the paragraphs, and focus on all the richness contained verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. That's one important way that we study the Bible. The other way that we study the Bible is we take a, a, a holistic look. We look at the whole book. We step back and say, if I read this whole letter, this whole letter to Colossians, what are some of the main themes that happen throughout? What are some of the main focuses that um, weave throughout the entire book? And there are two themes that I've noticed repeated and emphasized as I've been studying the whole book and piece by piece. And those two themes are fullness and thanksgiving. Fullness and thanksgiving. I was looking at all the places in Colossians where gratitude is mentioned or thanks is mentioned. And actually, you have those printed for you in the bulletin. So if you're following along and you see on the bottom of page four, those are all the places where gratitude or thanksgiving is mentioned. And I realized if I just went passage by passage through the letter, as I was preaching each of these texts, I would probably mention gratitude. I would probably mention thanksgiving. But seeing how they're mentioned in each of these passages, I probably would have made it a point or a sub-point, and most likely it would have been overlooked. And that wouldn't do justice to how important, to how central a theme gratitude is to this entire letter, uh, the letter to the Colossians. I never knew this. I learned a lot this week about gratitude, about gratitude in Colossians, but of all the books of the New Testament, Of all the books of the New Testament, gratitude is emphasized more in Colossians than any other book, than any other letter. You could call it the epistle of gratitude. And those two themes come together as we look at the entire letter. As we read it all, we see that Paul is saying a life of fullness is a life of gratitude. A life of gratitude is a life of fullness. In verse 7, chapter 2, which we just heard read, these two things come together in just that one three-word phrase, overflowing with gratitude. This is the heart of the letter, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, but we could easily just skim by this last mark as a passing remark, and overflowing with gratitude. And I almost did just kind of skim it over and move on to the next passage this week, but I sense God saying as we look at this theme throughout Colossians that... It's time to pause and camp out on just these three words. So I just want to review and summarize what we looked at last week. Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Paul is talking about this new logic that God has introduced to the human race in the gospel. This new logic for living that we mature, we grow, we change as people by receiving, not by achieving. The new logic is that we look first to the roots in our lives before the fruit of our lives. The new logic is we let ourselves be built by another, namely Jesus, rather than building and constructing our own lives. And in verse 7, we see that Paul is saying it's not about growing and changing and the sense that we're missing something or we don't have enough. It's not about looking outside to find something we don't have or something we haven't heard about. He said it's about looking deeper into what we've already heard, into what we already have in Jesus. So the logic is the more we learn to receive, 
The deeper we're rooted in Jesus, the more we're built into something new and beautiful by him. Verse 7, last three words. What does Jesus build? Well, his specialty is building people who are overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing gratitude. It's a sign that we get Jesus. It's a sign that we understand the heart of the message of Christianity. So let's look at three points when it comes to overflowing with gratitude from this text. First, the power of gratitude. Second, the difficulty with gratitude. And lastly, we'll talk about overflowing with gratitude. So the first thing to note here in this passage and throughout the whole letter is the power of gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude doesn't just mean being a person who's always saying thank you a lot, being a very polite person with good manners. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. It includes that, but it's much, much more than that. Overflowing with gratitude has the power to transform every aspect of our lives. Look at the lists of references that I've provided for you. Those are the lists of references to giving thanks or gratitude throughout Colossians. And I've had bolded there the thanks and the gratitude pieces. Gratitude comes up in all four chapters in Colossians, which means it's a part of everything Paul wants to teach us in this letter. It's connected to every part of our recovery and restoration as being full and true human beings. Look at these one by one. If you follow along with me with these references. Chapter 1 Verse 3, gratitude is what fuels our prayers for other people. Paul says, I thank God every time I pray for you. It gives us eyes to see what God is doing in other people's lives. It's seeing people like he does, so gratitude has the power to transform our relationships. If you look at verse 12, Paul's praying for them. He's praying that they would joyfully give thanks. Gratitude is tied to joy. The greater our gratitude the greater our joy. There's actually a verbal linkage between the words in the original language, joy, kara, grace, charis, and thanks, eucharisto, kara, charis, eucharisto, joy, grace, gratitude, they all link together. Greater our gratitude, the greater our joy. If you look down at the reference from 315, Gratitude, he says, let the peace of Christ dwell in you and be thankful. Gratitude actually has the power to reduce conflict in our relationships. It brings peace. Verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and be thankful. It's, gratitude is what makes the word of God, that sometimes is just conceptual in our minds, it's what makes it more than just intellectual but experiential. The more gratitude we have, the more God's word actually lives and dwells in us and in a community. And verse 17 says, gratitude is how the songs we sing become more than just songs and music, but it's actually transformed into worship that changes us and teaches us. So the implication is that without gratitude, truth is lifeless, and our songs are just songs without transforming power. And then look at verse 17, gratitude it says, is how we experience the presence and the power of Jesus, how it becomes a part of our lives in everything we say or do, whatever we do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him. It brings Jesus, it has the power to bring Jesus into our everyday 
experience. Lastly, 4 verse 2. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer and stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Gratitude is a part of how we develop a consistent and focused prayer life. Gratitude has the power to bring us closer to God. Do you see all of that? All throughout the letter to Colossians, Paul is saying, gratitude. Gratitude. See the power of gratitude for every aspect of our lives. And Paul's description here in Colossians of all these far-reaching benefits and the blessings of gratitude has recently been noticed in all kinds of social and psychological research. You just type in a search real quick, you'll see there's like eight TED Talks, all entitled The Power of Gratitude, all coming at it from different angles. And all this research has confirmed that the regular practice of gratitude has incredible benefits throughout all of our lives. Gratitude has been shown to help us become more optimistic people, happier people. Gratitude has been shown to reduce stress. Gratitude increases the amount that we exercise. It helps us get better sleep. Gratitude can dramatically change our psychological health. In one study, the regular practice of gratitude was the most effective intervention for helping people deal with issues from their past. Just gratitude. Gratitude leads to improved relationships, healthier marriages, better work environments, increased work productivity. And that's just a sample. The power of gratitude is incredible. Somebody's listening to one of those TED Talks right now. (laughs) It might be better than what I have to say. I don't know. So Paul emphasizes the power of gratitude. And we're rediscovering just how powerful it is. But let me ask you this. Why? Why is gratitude so powerful? How can it transform every aspect of human life? Why is that? How can something so simple and basic, just giving thanks, bring so many benefits and blessings to us? Well, the Bible's answer is that the power of gratitude is a massive clue to two basic and fundamental truths of human life. One, we were made to give thanks. We were made to live with overflowing gratitude all the time. It's meant to be our default setting as human beings. And it's an essential part of what it means to be fully alive. One, it's a clue. We were made for gratitude. Two, it's a clue that there is a giver. If there's gratitude, there's a giver. Those moments that we have when a thank you wells up inside of us, that instinct we have towards gratitude, it's a clue. We were made for gratitude because there's a giver. Let me share some examples of this. If if you're in your favorite place in the world, the place that you love to be in in the natural world, in creation, and you're looking out at it, You never say, I did this. This is mine. Instead, you say, you can't help it. Even if if you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, even if you're not sure there's a God, you say, thank you. Thank you. This is amazing. 
just, uh, just yesterday. Our youngest son, Luke, I was, I was making some breakfast. I was in a hurry. We had baseball games, and I got all this breakfast together. I threw it together. I put it on the table, and he came down, and he said, did you make this? I was like, yeah, I made this. And he said, thank you. I was like, what? <laughs> Maybe I've done one thing right as a parent. It was an incredible parenting moment. That's the instinct of thanks. We look around and go, did you make this? And God says, yes, I did. Say thank you. A few other examples. I find these fascinating. Um, this, this instinct for gratitude, it actually comes and wells up within us at some of our best moments, some of our times when we are most accomplished, when we would think that our instinct is to bask in the spotlight and go, yes, it is about me after all. Think about this, a couple examples. Every book that you read has a section, the acknowledgement section. It's either in the beginning or the end, and you read the acknowledgement sections of a book. And it says, I want to thank this person, my publisher, my editor, my family, these people that influence me. It goes on and on and on. It never says, acknowledgement, I thank myself. Because I worked really hard on this. I spent countless hours on this. There's some really incredible ideas in this book Thank you to me. But those things are true. But there's a sense I have to acknowledge. In my greatest accomplishment, I wrote a book. But thank you to all these people. Or if you're watching an award show, if you've ever accepted an award or received an honor and you stand up there, what's the instinct? The spotlight is on you. You're amazing. You did something incredible but you don't stand up there and say that. Thank you to me. I deserve this award. You say thank you to my parents. Thank you to my, the people who influence me. You gush and you overflow with gratitude. So even when the spotlight is on us, what's our instinct? To give thanks and glory to another. Why? In our moments of greatest awe, in our best moments, in our greatest accomplishments, something happens we cannot stop. It's overflowing with gratitude. Why? It's what we were made to do, to see all of life as a gift of God. That's why it has so much power, the power of gratitude. If gratitude is so powerful, if it has so many benefits for our lives, it seems so simple, just practice gratitude. Why is it so hard for us to do it? Why is it so hard for us to put it into practice? So we have this instinct toward gratitude. There are some equally, maybe even more powerful instincts within us that keep us from living a life overwhelming with gratitude. Instead of feeling like we're overwhelming with thanks, often we live our lives and we feel empty, we feel drained. If we overflow with anything, it's not gratitude, but many times it's, it's just irritability, anxiety, discontent. Culturally speaking, we have a day. We have one day out of all our other holidays, uh, many of which are consumeristic-driven you know, holidays. We have one day, Thanksgiving, right? But how hard is it for us as a culture to keep out greed and to keep out consumerism 
and to keep out discontent from creeping into our one day for gratitude. I know we've heard it all before. Black Friday has encroached upon Thanksgiving itself, and it begins on Thursday. We can't even keep it out of one day. And I'm not just saying that to bash consumerism. I'm not just saying that to, like, go on a crusade to make the Thanksgiving great again. I'm, I'm saying it because I want us to ask why. Why can't we just have one day where we're just overflowing with gratitude? If we can't have one day, how in the world can we follow what Paul's saying here? That every day should be a day of overflowing gratitude. In another one of his letters, in the, in the letter to the Roman church, Paul explains what's behind this inner tension. That tension within us between the instinct to overflow with gratitude and yet how difficult, impossible it is for us. He says there's something just as powerful as that instinct, often more powerful at work within us, that suppresses and pushes down that gratitude. Let me read from Romans 1 and put it up here on the screen. If you can read along. There, Paul is stepping back and he's saying, here's the dynamic at work in the world. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless or empty, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Here, Paul's making a case for something, something universal, something that no one can escape. It's been called the census divinitatis, the divine sense, the sense of the divine, of a power outside of time that has created us and everything else. It's the reason why most people throughout time and across history and cultures have believed in a divine being. It's a reason why there's a voice within us that wants to cry out, thank you. But there's another voice within us that says, no. Suppress that. But why would we suppress it? Why would we suppress the truth of God's sovereignty, his power, and his existence? The answer is, if we receive something as a gift, if we acknowledge our lives, if we acknowledge the world, if we acknowledge all things are a gift, it means there's a giver. And if everything we have is a gift, and there's a giver, none of it is ours. And we can't earn any of it. It's all grace. It's all a gift. And if none of it is ours, that means we're not entitled to anything. And if all of it's a gift, it means we can't earn anything. To acknowledge ingratitude that all is gift would mean the end of all our entitlement and the end of our ego that says, I can earn it. I deserve it. Gratitude is so difficult for us because of our entitlement and because of our egos. 
if we follow our instinct toward gratitude to overflow, it will lead us to let go of all sense of entitlement. It will undercut our ego at the root, and we would live like we don't deserve anything, and we can't earn anything from God. Martin Luther, he gave a lecture on Romans. The great reformer Martin Luther said, Ingratitude is the sin that leads to all other sin because it inverts the entire created order. It inverts the way things ought to be. Ingratitude places us over God. God, I am entitled to this kind of life. God, I am entitled to these things in my life. And God, if I do these things that you tell me to do, then I've earned your blessing. Then I've earned the kind of life that I think I should have. That kind of thinking is an inversion of the way we were made to live. Because gratitude says, I place myself under you. You are Lord, and all is gift. That's the difficulty of gratitude, because it calls us to let go of all our entitlement and all of our ego. So if I said <clears throat> this week, third point, Closing point here, gratitude is so powerful. Yes, it is difficult, but here's what you need to do. Third point, have an attitude of gratitude. You would say, wow, that's catchy. That's a good third point for a sermon. But if you gave it some effort, you might be able to experience some of the benefits of gratitude, but that would not be doing this passage or the letter of Colossians justice. It says not only are we called to have gratitude in our lives, we're called to overflow with gratitude. That so much gratitude is inside us that it's spilling out of our lives and it's spilling on to the other people around us. It sounds compelling. We say, I want to live like that. But it also seems out of reach. It seems like it's impossible. That's how I responded this week. How can I possibly live this life of overflowing gratitude? what we find throughout the letter and throughout the Bible is that we can't get to the overflow of gratitude if we're just after it for its blessings and its benefits to us. We'll never find it. An overflow of gratitude only comes when our gratitude takes us beyond ourselves, beyond the gifts, takes us to the giver. To overflow with gratitude, we need to follow the gifts to the giver. David Powell wrote a book called Thanksgiving. I was reading that book this week, a great book. He says, in a life of thanksgiving, the giver is valued beyond the gifts that are presented. His point is that a gift is meant to strengthen a relationship. A gift is meant to build the relationship. And that's how all God's gifts are meant to function in our lives. Let me share a few examples of how this works. An illustration. So, if I'm planning uh, to give a birthday gift to my wife, Amelia, and I'm putting a lot of thought into it, it has to be a very special gift, 
and I feel like I found it, that I've nailed it. I've got a great card. I've got a great gift. I package it up. I give it to her. She opens it up and says, it's a phone, exactly what I wanted for my birthday. This is amazing. This is it. This is the phone I wanted. This is perfect. Thank you. Then I'll feel like pretty good about myself. Yes, I nailed it. Well, imagine if the next day comes and she's enamored with the phone. She's, she's on the phone. She's loving it. I'm still going to feel I'm like, yeah, that's, that's good. She loves it. Hasn't worn off yet. She's still got the gleam in her eye. This is good. This is good for our relationship. But then the next day comes and I say, hey, honey, you want to hang out like tonight and let's watch a movie? And she says, I'm just, I'm just going to hang out with my phone tonight. That's cool. That's cool. I love this phone. Say, oh, okay, okay, that's all right. And then another day comes by, and we, I say, it's time for dinner. It's time, time for us to have dinner. And she said, no, thank you. I'm going to eat with my phone. I'm just going to have a dinner with my phone. I know it sounds ridiculous, but the point is, a gift is given to build a relationship. When we place the gifts above the giver, between us and God, that's called idolatry. That's taking the good things God has given to us and making them into gods themselves. Gifts are meant to strengthen the relationship, not replace the relationship. But there's another side to this, the same illustration. If, if I give Amelia the best phone and she takes it and she says, thank you, I love it, it's perfect, and it's an exciting moment. And then the next day she wakes up and says, uh, it's old now, I want a new phone. Can I have another one? And I get her another phone. I say, okay, that wasn't it. I'll just get you another phone. The next day she wakes up and says, no, no, it's not that one. I want another one. I want the newest and the latest model. That also would undermine the relationship. Idolatry is overvaluing the gifts. Discontent is undervaluing the gifts. Between idolatry and our discontent, both of those keep us from following the gifts to the giver. We're meant to savor the gifts God has given to us. We're meant to receive them. We're meant to say thank you. We're meant to enjoy all of God's good gifts, but we're meant to follow them to God himself. We follow the gifts to the giver. You know, the thing about this last section, Colossians 2, 6, and 7, where Paul says, overflowing with gratitude, the way that it's phrased, it's actually an exhortation. It's kind of like a command. But if you've tr ever tried to command gratitude in another person or if somebody has tried to command gratitude of you, you know it doesn't work. If you receive this from your parents or maybe parents, you've said this to your kids, those of you who are parents, why are you so ungrateful? Why are you so ungrateful for this food? You need to eat it. There are starving people somewhere. So eat this food and be grateful. Don't you know all that I've done for you? I deserve your respect. I deserve your honor. I deserve your total obedience. You should be grateful. Has that ever worked? <laughs> it's a speech we love to give as parents, but it never, it's never worked in the history of mankind. Why doesn't it work? Gratitude doesn't 
happen as a result of a command. It happens when our hearts are melted by the gift. When we come to realize how much it costs the person giving the gift, how little we deserve it, and how we did nothing to earn it. We follow the gifts to the giver. We also need to learn to follow our ingratitude to God's best gift. Though our lives often don't overflow with gratitude, we overflow with criticism, we overflow with complaining, we overflow with comparing our lives to other people, we overflow with coveting and wanting the life and the things that other people have. In the gospel, God says to us, bring all that to me. Bring all that to me because I have a gift for you that can overflow and abound over that. It is the gift of my son given to you in the gospel. The gospel, on the one hand, it exposes our entitlement and our ego like nothing else. But on the other hand, it shows us the generous, gracious, overflowing, superabundant, giving love of God like nothing else. In the gospel, we realize we deserve nothing. We are entitled to nothing. Only Jesus is entitled to everything, including us, including everything in this creation, including everything in our lives. And though we often live in entitlement, in the gospel we see, we don't even get what we deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve to live in our ingratitude, separated off from the giver of all good gifts and separated from his benefits and all his blessings. And instead of receiving that, we receive the gift of reconciliation, of restoration with him, and all the good gifts that come to us in Jesus. The gospel undercuts our entitlement. It also undercuts our ego because in the gospel we see we can earn nothing. Our effort, our goodness doesn't earn us one more ounce of God's love and acceptance and blessing. And so the cross destroys our ego. We can't add to it. The cross is full. The cross is complete. The cross is enough. Jesus has earned for us what we could never earn for ourselves. And so we need to follow even our ingratitude. Because as we follow our ingratitude, we see the cost. The cost of the gift. We see how little we deserve the gift. And we see how we, there's nothing we can do to earn it or to lose it. I want to close by reading from Romans 5. Paul says this about the gift compared to our sin, our trespasses, the ways that we live in ingratitude. He says, the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned from that one man, he's speaking of Adam, how much more 
will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We overflow with gratitude when we bring all of our not-enoughness and it becomes overwhelmed with the enoughness of Jesus. We receive the overflowing gift. He gives the overflowing gift. And we become people with overflowing gratitude. May it be. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the great giver. You are the one who has made all good gifts. And we have so many that we enjoy. We've enjoyed this week. We've enjoyed today. You have showered us with innumerable blessings and gifts. And yet, we often do live in this place of entitlement. We think we need to earn your love. We think we have earned your love. And I pray you would set us free. Set us free from living out of a place of thinking we need to get what we deserve or we need to earn from you your grace. And as we come to your table, I pray you would meet us with overflowing grace for all of our needs, for all of our brokenness, and even for all of our ingratitude. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.